everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers, and I'm here with Odie Martinez. It's great to have you with me, Odie. Thank you. It's been a couple of weeks since we met the last time. It's actually been three weeks, and um, I'm glad to be back. Very happy to be back. Uh, before I dive into talking a little bit about the last couple of weeks to kind of get us caught up to date, I want to invite you. I've got uh, my co-creators uh, 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 here in the studio besides Odie are uh, Franz Salvatierra to my left, handling all the mechanical aspects of this graciously, and, and Austin Armstrong, who's, they're both instrumental in co-producing this program each week, and I'm just grateful to be back with you all. We're well into over half of a year now of podcasts, and there's a tremendous range of resources. I hover around certain topics that I specialize in, but uh, we're game on for virtually any uh, question that you ask, and I really invite that if you uh, send in questions through the chat box, Austin will fill those. He'll send those to Odie and me, and we'll, uh, we'll uh, weave those into the conversation. So thanks for being back and engage fully with my full invitation. Um, we're going to be getting into a topic today, uh, uh, or, and actually over the next three weeks, looking at self-compassion and how that pertains to successful recovery. But before doing that, I want to depart from the, pod, the uh, PowerPoint for just a minute. It seems incumbent on me, being gone for the last three weeks, to, to uh, incorporate this into our whole focus on uh, uh, creating a foundation for successful recovery. And here's how I think about it. I've been ill for the last three weeks. I've actually been ill for the last two months. I had shoulder surgery eight weeks ago, rotator cuff repair that was meant to be pretty straightforward. Unfortunately, it wasn't. The shoulder got infected, and in fact, my whole system had a septic reaction. I had a, my whole body, I had a, a serious infection that got worse and worse by the week and by the day. It landed me in the hospital. Long story short, they're treating me now with IV antibiotics on a daily basis. Uh, I do that at home. I have a home health nurse that helps me with that. And I had a second surgery on my shoulder. And as I was sharing with the gentleman here, they, the, uh, the, the, the idea of a rotator cuff is that they fix the tear by anchoring it to the bone with these pins. They call them anchors. Well, it turns out that the infection actually uh, uh, clustered around the anchors because they're alien bodies. And so guess what? They had to take out the anchors. And so I'm back to square one with my left arm flapping in the breeze. But as I was telling Odie and Franz and, and Austin, I'm really glad to be alive. And so I'd far rather be alive than have a successful shoulder surgery. <laughs> um, my orthopedic surgeon said to me just this week, he says, Bob, I really apologize for the odyssey this has been. And, and I thanked him for acknowledging that. And then I realized later, you don't ever want to hear your surgeon tell you that it's been an odyssey. <laughs> don't ever wish for that. <laughs> Maybe wish it on your enemies, I don't know. <laughs> At any rate, it has been an odyssey, and I'm back and really grateful to be back, really grateful to be back. And what it's brought up for me, and I was thinking of it this morning, this is after I sent the PowerPoint uh, slides off to uh, France um, yesterday, is that it, it's good that we stop for a moment and address the, um, the foundational nature of our physical health. I've been physically compromised for the last several weeks, and I'm very aware of this. And many of you have had uh, serious illnesses perhaps in the past. This is my first time ever in the hospital. I've never been in a hospital, and uh, uh, I'm glad I haven't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, um, makes me think right now of the, the psychologist Abraham Maslow. He's one of the fathers of American psychology. And in the 1960s, Maslow developed a theory of motivation and developed what within psychology is a fairly uh, famous uh, 
a hierarchy. It's oftentimes referred to just simply as Maslow's hierarchy. It's M-A-S-L-O-W. And if you look at Maslow's hierarchy on Google, you'll have infinite infographics about that topic. The bottom line is it's a, it's a pyramid uh, with uh, five different levels and each uh, there's a foundational level and each successive level is dependent on the previous level being in place and, and uh, serving. Hmm. And the foundational level is the physiological domain. And so the way I think about this is, for example, if you and I have a fight or a falling out, it doesn't really matter if I don't have oxygen. Hmm. And so whether we're on good terms or not, I need to be breathing in order to address relational needs. Relational needs are the third step of this hierarchy of Maslow's, and you can see the common sense in it. In fact, the way he talks about it is that the physiological needs, which are the foundation or primary, those make it possible to then begin addressing the next need, which is safety and security, mm. is that we're safe and secure in our lives, both physically and relationally. The next need is what he refers to as belongingness needs, which is our connecting in an intimate, meaningful, nourishing way. And he sees that as instrumental to our developing self-esteem. And the way that Maslow talks about self-esteem is uh, our being able to engage in the world in meaningful ways and make a difference, where we're really utilizing our gifts. That's the basis for self-esteem. And that self-esteem is the basis for the next and the final uh, uh, step of his hierarchy, which is uh, self-actualization. That's a Another uh, famous term in psychology attributed to Abraham Maslow. And self-actualization is what it sounds like, is am I actualizing why I'm on this planet? Hmm. If, you know, Odie has a certain kind of code for his life, fate, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. It can be framed in religious terms, and that's fine as well. Destiny, fate, uh, God's path. And the same for Bob. And to the extent that we're fulfilling those, we feel self-actualized. But self-actualization, self-esteem, belongingness, and safety and security are all predicated on a sturdy physical foundation. So if you've been ill, you realize that physical illness has the capacity of trumping all those other four levels. Mm -hmm. You've got to get that in place. Okay. Uh, the way that I think about this, and I'll talk about this first person in terms of my own recovery, is this. In my morning meditations, I always finish every morning's meditation with about five minutes of just what I call gratitude practice. And I start that gratitude practice. I actually use Maslow's hierarchy as my model for gratitude practice, which is a psychology geek thing to do. I acknowledge <laughs> that. But I'll start by expressing gratitude for the physiological domain and how that's going. And I go through the other four that I named. I won't do that today. But I will just share briefly, just so that we can kind of ground this, uh, this focus on the physiological domain or physical health, doing groundless in the context of recovery. And here's what I do, Odie, okay. is that I, I will uh, say to myself, uh, uh, I'm grateful for, and I'm grateful for about a half a dozen things, and it's ritualized for me. I just, I actually kind of monitor how I'm doing. The first thing is sobriety. Hmm. I'm grateful every morning for sobriety because that's not been a given in my life. And kind of everything else hinges on sobriety in terms of, of, of all the other domains of my life. And I know how how addiction can impair or, or hamstring virtually everything that's meaningful to me. Yeah. So I'm grateful for that. I start with that. Then I'm grateful next for my physical health, my overall health. I have to tell you that in the last few weeks, that's been a very short prayer. <laughs> <laughs> having said that, yeah. having said that, I am grateful for improvements. And as I told you guys when I came in, I'm about 80% right now, which feels pretty doggone good after having been at what felt like about 
20 or maybe even 10%. I was really, my life force was really, really uh, stretched way thin. And so I'm grateful for that. And, and, I, and so I track that every day just in my prayers. The next thing that I uh, uh, exp express gratitude is any exercise that I've had. And sometimes that can be a good walk outside or it can be working out in a gym. But any exercise, purely physiological, but good exercise, uh, empowers the rest of my life for sure. And I can tell. And, and I don't lie to myself. If I come to exercise and I go, well, thank you for exercise to the universe or to God. Mm -hmm. I won't say that if I haven't exercised. It's just kind of a, it's a checkpoint. It's like, you know what? I didn't do well with that yesterday. I don't beat myself up for that. But I'll oftentimes mm -hmm. use this as a reminder. Let's see what we can do today to exercise. So it makes, it makes for me to be more intentional. Hmm. So after exercise comes my diet. I look at how, you know, if I had a good day of eating balanced diet, I'm thankful for that. If I didn't, again, it's all correct. Hmm. The next is sleep. Anybody who's struggled with addiction, and many of the people who haven't struggled with sleep, I certainly in early recovery struggled for months and months and months with a huge difficulty sleeping. And it's typical of the rebound effect when you recover uh, from uh, addiction, there's the withdrawal phase, and it really fouls up your sleep cycle generally. And so I'm very grateful for when I can sleep. And as fate would have it all these years later, uh, this illness I've had, the infection, has really put my sleep upside down. And so am I grateful for my sleep? Well, it's been, it's been challenging. But what I can say is that last night I slept for a couple of hours at a time. What will happen is shoulder pain will come back in. It will wake right. me up. And it's time for Advil or <laughs> Tylenol. I'm on this kind of staggered cycle for those. And, <laughs> and when I can get a, a, night's, a decent night's rest, which I did last night, it's broken up. I'm grateful for that because yeah. that's an improvement over not sleeping at all. And earlier, two or three weeks ago, I couldn't sleep at all. You could have hammered me in the head and I wouldn't sleep. Um, and then finally, what I include in this, so we've talked about sobriety, health, general health, uh, Diet, uh, exercise, diet, and sleep. The final thing I include is self-regulation. And what I mean by self-regulation is that whatever I do to relax and calm myself, center myself. Hmm. For me, a big feature of that is meditation. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Music can do that for me. Reading might do that for you. We all have expressions of ourselves that help move us out of the fray. Psychology calls that self-regulation. And it's what we, whatever we do to manage stress. And it's directly related to our physiology because when I'm stressed out, everything else is compromised. My eating goes to hell, uh, my diet does, et cetera. And so, right. so uh, I wanted just to stop for a minute and acknowledge with you all today, gratitude for the physiological domain developing its own kind of redeveloping its own integrity for me. Very grateful for that. And also uh, 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 want to encourage you to have some way, if you can, you don't have to do it the way I do it, but some way just to track yourself on a daily basis because this stuff can get way down the road before you realize you haven't exercised in months yeah. or that your diet has, has, has really slipped off the, uh, the edge of the cliff. Some way to monitor that. And I want to say this particularly for people that are in recovery from addictions, whether to substance or certain behaviors, is that I, I really do believe that Maslow's right, right. If I can manage my physiology, manage my biology, my body, if I can manage that, it's a big leg up in terms of managing uh, other stressors or other triggers that would uh, lead me to relapse. And so mm -hmm. I really do believe that the foundation is physical. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it's a good way to start as a foundation. So I recommend that you have some way to monitor and track in a gracious way. You know, it's not about beating ourselves up, but it's just like a way of tracking, gently correcting, and, uh, and uh, uh, staying on the path. So let me pause with that and see what you think of this, Odie. Any thoughts about this? Yeah, I like it.
Yeah. I like it a lot. Um, yeah. While you were saying that, I was thinking about how uh, at times when, if I don't get a, a good night's rest yeah. when you were talking about yeah, that, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I definitely feel it the next morning. Yes. Yeah, uh, I, I'm grumpy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Short with my wife. Yeah. yeah and yeah, uh, yeah, me too, me too. I tend to just yeah. Uh, yeah. not eat. Yeah. Correctly. Yeah. It's yeah. it's interesting. They they ripple, don't they? It affects yeah. it affects it affects your ability if you care about exercising. It affects your diet generally. What is that acronym in in the program, in the twelve step programs? Uh, if I'm hungry, if I'm angry, if I'm lonely, if I'm tired, HALT is the acronym. Uh -huh. HALT. Hunger, anger, loneliness, and fatigue. Tiredness right. is and really what we're talking about with hunger. And tiredness, those are just purely physical. Right. I think anger can be an interpersonal thing, and, and loneliness certainly is a, is the absence of that. But just to to realize that if you're if you're tired, it's going to affect your diet. It's going to affect if you're if you're in recovery, it's going to affect your sobriety. And whether you are or not, it's going to affect your relationship to those that you care the most about, including yeah, your wife. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. So just some way to keep ourselves honest. I've got a nasty habit. I'll give you an example of it. I love music. I'm crazy about music. We were talking when we came in here, Franz took me out to hear some great music the other day and I'm just like totally spaz about music. I love watching it, I love listening to it, I love playing it. I've got a jazz quintet that is morphing into something really cool right now. And so this is a major source of pleasure for me. But one of the, here's the nasty habit is that if I stay up at night and watch videos of drummers, I'm a drummer. <laughs> Uh, I, if I stay up and watch videos of drummers, it's so stimulating to me, and it's so pleasurable. Mm -hmm. It's so stimulating to me. I even get this way reading articles about musicians, but particularly watching live performances online, is that it's almost guaranteed to keep me awake, and then I pay the piper the next day, or I should say my <laughs> wife and those closest to me pay the piper. And so this is a way to keep track of that. It's like, okay, it's okay every once in a while to eat too much. It's okay yeah. every once in a while to watch a drum concert. <laughs> But don't make a habit of that, Bobby, because it's going to be a great cause. <laughs> yeah, that even a uh, spiritual, on the spiritual side of things as yeah, well. Yeah, you for know, sure. uh, yeah. for me and my wife, um, what we do, we like to do, we pray mm. at night mm -hmm. and then we pray yeah. in the morning That's as beautiful. well. But That's beautiful. Uh, you know, if we stay up too late watching our favorite show right, or right, just, right, 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 right. just wasting time. That yeah. goes out the window. Yeah. First thing in the yeah. morning, which yeah. is like, oh, we yeah. got to get to work. So yeah. No time yeah. to pray. Yeah. No time yeah. to read. Totally read agree the with Bible, you. So. Yeah. I get up in the morning and have quiet time. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's, it's a kind of spiritual uh, 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 centering for the day. It's very important to me. And it takes about a half hour to, to, to kind of go through all that I go through with that. Right. And if I'm exhausted, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm not going to attend to it. I, there's, it's not a luxury I can afford. Yeah. Uh, it, this is a good example. Thank you, Odie. You're it's welcome. a good example of Maslow's hierarchy. My left arm doesn't work very well, but if you can picture this being a, tr a, a pyramid, it's kind of a, it's like the leaning pyramid of Pisa, but it's a pyramid, is that at the very top is self-actualization. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, I have to tell you that in Maslow's last year of his life, he died in 1970, he actually included another, another element to the pyramid, and it's not widely known, but he included this. He called it self-transcendence. He didn't feel like the self-actualization was quite enough to describe uh, the further reaches of spirituality in terms of personal prayer and devotion mm -hmm. and transformation. So he included self-transcendence, and he meant it really as a, as a spiritual thing that's even beyond self-actualization. And uh, you're welcome to read more about that online because he, 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 it's an important point that he made. But if you think about it, like what, what Odie's saying, is that self-actualization and or, let's say, self-transcendence 
they completely depend on you being um, uh, uh, with a foundation in a solid physical well-being. Yeah. And so whether it's sleep or diet or exercise or uh, sobriety, in the case of those that are in recovery, the whole house kind of falls down based on that not being managed. And yeah, so exactly. it makes complete sense to me. I had a student who, who did his doctoral dissertation uh, with me supervising some 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Wow, time flies. <laughs> and uh, uh, Juan Perez, he did a fantastic dissertation. And, uh, and one of the things he decided that he discussed in his dissertation, I think I shared this once before, is that biology has priority mm -hmm. and psychology and spirituality have supremacy. Oh. And he was basically giving another way to talk about Maslow's hierarchy right. is that biology has priority, it's prior to. If I don't have that, then I don't really have a capacity to work on the psychological or the yeah. spiritual domains. And I like very much that, 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 uh, that uh, turning in there, is that psychology and spirituality have supremacy. They're actually more complex developmental phenomena to talk about it psychologically. Uh, to have a robust spirituality requires having an intact psychology, mm -hmm. else you're victim to what we refer to as spiritual bypassing. Right. People will bypass their psychological work. Like It'd be like you um, aggressing against your wife and then praying. Right. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but plenty of us will do that yeah. kind of thing in some form or another. And so psychology and, bio, and spirituality rest on a firm physiological foundation, and spirituality rests on a firm psychological foundation. I've always felt like the psychology work that I do, I've been a, a psychotherapist, and I was once a licensed psychologist before I lost my license, owing to addiction. All mm -hmm. the decades of psychology work that I've done, whether in therapy and now in recovery coaching, all of those feel like to me that they're handmaidens to spirituality. Mm -hmm. I've never felt like there's a, for me there's not a distinction, they're on the same continuum, mm -hmm. is that my work helping you with your psychology is in service of you developing your faith and your spirituality. Mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, yeah. uh, because of my own background, clients, I've had many clients come to me, including ministers that asked me in the first session, Dr. Bob, are you going to criticize my faith? Mm. And I said, quite the contrary. I said, yeah. it's a central resource to our work and my goal is to clear off the underbrush of things that might getting in the way right. of your faith being as, as generative and, and vital as you'd want it to be. Mm -hmm. And when they work with me, they see that I'm not kidding. It's absolutely the case is that it's, it's, that's the that's way great. that I see it. So there's no, there's no necessary distinction at all. I know that there's, there are plenty of experiences people have had where psychology would reduce their spirituality mm -hmm. to being a psychological phenomenon. Right. And that's what philosophy calls a category error. You're basically mistaking your category for that category and smushing them together. It's also referred to as reductionism, mm -hmm. and it's a no-no. Right. <laughs> it's a no-no. Shame oh, on yeah. you for exactly, exactly. In a conversation about shame, we can use it freely with tongue-in-cheek, okay? Okay. So that's a little bit of a preview today, maybe a lot of a bit of a preview, but it just is occasioned by limitation. When my physical body, which I take for granted, health, rest, yeah. all those things, when it's really impinged upon, my Lord, everything else grinds to a halt. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, let's get this house in order before we build the next house. And so I share that with you in hopes that it will be of service to you in your own uh, daily reflections, your own daily monitoring of yourself, your own tracking of your life practice. I think that that it begins with taking care of our bodies in all these ways, and there's more, but that's, that's a good place to start. Okay, dear friend Franz, we're gonna move into this for the PowerPoint slides now. Uh, in our last meeting, which was, I wrote this PowerPoint after our last session, 
And then I just happened to go into the hospital after that, and then after that, lay in a, in a coma for a week, not literally, but might as well have been, uh, lying in bed last week. And so what this slide says last week really means three weeks ago. <laughs> okay, oops, my bad. Um, in our last meeting, we talked about getting clear on how shame and addiction come in many disguises. For example, my shame, which is a feeling of self-loathing, self-doubt, uh, feeling like I'm a failure, it oftentimes won't manifest as that. It'll manifest, for example, as aggression. Yeah. I'll be violent towards you rather than admit my vulnerability. Mm -hmm. There's other forms it can take, and, and it's directly linked to addiction. And We've done a lot of discussion of this. For, the you, for those of you that haven't seen previous episodes of Ask Addiction Specialists, I really recommend you go back and look at our previous um, uh, podcasts. It's why each week when we move forward, I always mention last week's because there's a thread here that we're following that includes a heavy emphasis on looking at the internal psychology behind addiction and also uh, 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 the transformation that's needed to support successful and sustained recovery. And so these are not separate. They're actually mm -hmm. quite connected. And so we've done a lot of looking at shame uh, uh, in, the, in the last weeks and trying to figure out how to unshame ourselves. This week we're moving into the next unit which is on self-compassion and self-compassion is anything, it's nothing but the flip side or maybe the antidote to shame. Hmm. So today we'll be looking at, uh, starting by looking at building self-compassion and I'll, and I'll preview later on today where we're planning to go over the next, uh, the next three weeks. Okay. So I already said it. The next slide says, shame opposes compassion. Shame is the opposite of compassion. Shame is the opposite of compassion. And rather than trying to convince you of the truth of that abstract statement, I want to give us an exercise. This is the exercise, my friend. Have you ever had somebody pay you a compliment that you could not receive? Hmm. And if you answer no, then I'm going to come out there and grab you. Have <laughs> you think twice about it? So built into this is an exercise. And I want you just, we're going to pause for a minute. Would you reflect for a minute, maybe in an important event in your life? It could be just something that happened recently where somebody gave you a positive compliment. And for whatever reason, it stopped right at your skin. It didn't go in. It couldn't receive it. So we think about that for a moment, then I'm going to engage with Odie. And I also invite you to share as you wish online with us here today uh, in our podcast. You're welcome to do that. Give yourself a second to think into that. A compliment that you could not absorb. I'd like you to use time, uh, even after today's podcast, uh, and we'll continue to move forward to do some journaling on this. If you're inclined to do that, it could be very helpful just to write out more details about this event. Um, but I, I, I want to bring it back into the studio right now and ask Odie if you'd be willing to share, and I'm certainly willing to share, does something come to your mind? And I'm springing this on you. I did not plant this question earlier. So, <laughs> you you know, did not, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any re uh, response to that? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had plenty of situations where, in the work environment, where I've I've been given a compliment on mm -hmm. on my work mm -hmm. and given me like a positive yeah. affirmation of like, so, hey, that's you did really awesome on this uh, X Y Z whatever. Yeah. Um, and just uh, I typically do this a lot, but I'll I'll just be like, ah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't anything, it wasn't a big deal. But um, yeah, I've thought about that before. Um, not just in 
most recently, but because I've always I usually do this. Okay. And um, I thought back to uh, a certain moment, and I've shared this before, I believe, but okay. like a relative uh, when I was younger would uh, pretty much tell me otherwise that even when I would do something that I think was good, you know, they tell me otherwise, and I think. And I believe that's that kind of stuck with me yeah. throughout the yeah. throughout my life. But yeah. Uh, yeah. just knowing and being aware of that, yeah, thank you, and yeah. doing my best to, when that does happen yeah. to just be like, yeah. well, um, it's now no longer that. It's now just uh, mm. trying to be humble about it, so it doesn't uh, yeah. get to my head. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you for all of that, Odie. You're welcome. I really hear you about the humility thing. It's not about getting a puffed up ego, mm -hmm. but it's about being able to receive it kind of in balance. And right. some of these prohibitions that we learn because they're modeled, like you talked about earlier in our interaction, and who of us escapes childhood without some shaming experiences where you're told that you are getting a big head, right. or like you're talking about, if I understand it, is that you, you actually, the feedback you receive is kind of the converse of what you just did. You achieve something and it's, and it's made fun of or criticized or ignored. Exactly. And it leaves yeah. us with these wounds that, that really tie into all of our conversations, including our most recent one about shame, is that, that really is, that's how shame, as I understand it, gets laid down interpersonally. Mm. It's, it's the failure of what psychology calls mirroring. You do something well and right. I don't mirror you. And that could be I can criticize you or I can just look the other way. Mm -hmm. I can have a non-response. And that gets absorbed by any child growing up as uh, it's really not okay for, for me to shine. Mm. It's really not okay. Yeah. And, and you can't really judge. Like I can't judge Odie's behavior from the outside. If Odie says, if I give you a compliment, you go, I was nothing. I can't judge that because I have to talk to you to find out what that's about. It could really yeah. be you're, not, you're just wanting to maintain humility, and that's admirable. But it could also be rooted in you don't deserve to be complimented mm -hmm. or I don't deserve to be complimented. And then that gets us closer to this dimension of shame for sure. It's yeah. a great example. I'll tell you a, a similar story. It's, uh, it, this happens to be a very significant event for me, kind of one of those watershed moments. It doesn't have to be that way, but, right, but yeah. this one was. It was my first year in graduate school. This is all those years ago, almost 40 years ago. And I was in a class of uh, 25 students. We were all studying uh, in a doctoral program in psychology. And uh, one of the exams in my psychological assessment class, it was a midterm, uh, the day after the exam was taken, or the next class after the exam, the instructor chose to read my entire exam before the class. We were sitting in this amphitheater, so there's 25 students. Wow. We're looking down on stage, and he had his, his uh, teaching assistant read the entire exam. It was uh, questions, uh, essay questions. Right. And at the, end, at the end, the entire class stood up and applauded. And it was my exam that he had read. Nice. And I never I have the chills right now with it. I think I'd have a different response right now to some extent, but I didn't mm. then, and, I, and it really hit me, is I felt like crawling into a hole. Mm. You think, what the heck? Yeah. It's like your whole class, your professor, has deemed it worthwhile to read your entire exam to the class. But it, it went into this place inside, and not only was I, was I embarrassed by it being read, but I remember bringing it to my supervision group the next day. It's a peer supervision group. And I shared this with them, and I remember being embarrassed about being embarrassed. 
it felt like there's something really messed up about my response, and yeah. I don't think I was far off. <laughs> I don't think I was far off. It's like, holy moly, you should be celebrating. And in right. fact, I was just horribly embarrassed. And I, I realized, and I, it, it took me years, maybe decades, to work that out. But right. I realized at that time, there's something really messed up about this. And honestly, at that point, early in my academic career in psychology, I really didn't have a strong clue. I just, my instinct says, this is weird. <laughs> you know, that, that this response. Yeah. And so I look back on that as being one of those kind of opening of your eyes moments. And then if I flash forward over the decades, uh, and we'll talk more about how you've watched other videos, and I encourage you to do that. And Austin encourages you to write that you like them online. Thank you very much, Austin. I expect a smiley face anytime soon. Is that I, I, uh, the single greatest trigger for relapse to addiction is what we're talking about, which is shame. Yeah is that it's so unpleasant, maybe not in a major way. If I compliment you, this may not send you to a drink uh, or drug, yeah. okay? But if you're prone to addiction and the, and the shame is deep enough, mm. it sure will. Right. It sure will. And so uh, uh, there is a smiley face. You're welcome, Austin. <laughs> okay. So if we look at the next slide after this exercise, shame leaves us with, with a sense of being a failure or something being broken, a sense mm -hmm. of being defective. And if you think about this, there's no way in for Odie or for Bob if we have a shame sense of self, because mm -hmm. it doesn't fit with that. It's like if I'm not, if I don't feel worthwhile myself, you're telling me my worthwhile is like water off of a duck's back. Mm -hmm. I had one client years ago that said it like this. He says he's like a Teflon coat, and people throw compliments at him. I never forget the image. He says they throw compliments, and it's like. Uh, it's like a, a scoop of ice cream. That was the image yet. A scoop of ice cream, and it hits the Teflon, and it just melts and goes down. It never <laughs> penetrates. Isn't that a great image? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what shame does. Shame is like some massive Teflon coating that won't allow ice cream in, won't <laughs> allow compliments in. And, and if you think about it, in the next slide, we talk about this. If no compassion, no ice cream from the outside, because I'm Teflon, if there's no compassion from the, at the outside, I give you one big fat guess of how this goes with compassion from inside. Mm. That is to feel compassion towards yeah. yourself or myself. Is that they're, they're intimately tied and you can really not have one without the other. My openness to your compliments to me is an exact mirror of my openness to my supporting of myself from inside. Mm. In any other language, that's self-compassion. Yeah. To have compassion for myself, particularly when I'm vulnerable or when I've made a mistake. So when you have a, a, an argument, let's say, with your wife, or some kind, of, or you let somebody down, or you, you forget something here in the office, right. the measure of shame is how does that go for you? Mm. And if it moves from, I'm sorry, honey, I made a mistake, to I'm a lousy, no good for nothing husband, that's moving from yeah. guilt to shame. That's the way we've talked about it. Right. Guilt, which is very instructive, I actually think of it as being important and necessary uh, to shame, which is really by definition, the way we discuss it here is toxic. It's mm. toxic. So one of the sad parts about this is that the poor get poor, is that if I can't let in, if I can't let in your praise, your compliments, or you can't let them in, then you don't have that nourishment coming in, and you're left in kind of a dried up environment inside because you can't give it to yourself either. Mm -hmm. And so how do we break the system? Because I mean, it's just, it's you just what I'm saying. It's like a vicious cycle. Yeah. I just, I get more and more dried up. The way I think about this in terms of addiction is that there's a double tragedy. And I really use tragedy advisedly here is that there's not a client that I see in recovery who hasn't been uh, uh, traumatized beyond the norm. Mm. 
have a note here about the, uh, the studies that have been done. They're called the ACE studies. I've mentioned them before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. The ACE studies, which is just an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences, mm. is that the addicted population, whether it's to substance or to addictive behaviors, uh, is statistically uh, well beyond uh, uh, the normal level of trauma. We all experience traumas growing up of disappointments, betrayals, abandonments, sometimes violence and abuse. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the, at the addicted population as a whole and administer measures that track adverse childhood experiences, they're statistically different, which is to say it's a significant difference between that population and a non-addicted population, which is mm -hmm. to say that virtually every client that I work with has come from a traumatized background. Right. And it's not to judge it. It's yeah. like, let's just name it for what it is and find effective ways of dealing with that. Right. Now, here's the double tragedy. It's not enough that I've been traumatized or that you've been traumatized. Right. The double whammy is that it's associated with shame, mm. is that the trauma gets internalized as there's something wrong with me. Mm. And there's no child on the planet that doesn't equate, for example, parental abuse mm -hmm. with there being something it being my fault. Mm. It's the way that we're wired. We can't possibly have our parents be bad, wrong, limited, crazy. Right. And so we'll make ourselves that, and that's the birth of shame. Mm. That's the birth of shame. Is it any accident then, then in uh, early adolescence, oftentimes, sometimes even before that, that the, the men and women I work with turn to self-medication? Mm. Yeah. Who, who of us can, can stand the constancy of traumatic memories coupled with shameful emotions uh, long term. As I mentioned here before, one client of mine said, she's a nurse, and she says, Bob, I can't possibly... Oh, gosh darn it, what was her term? Oh, I got it. I can't possibly barbecue in my own adrenaline. Right, yeah. That was her term for it. And shame is associated with the highest elevations of adrenaline and cortisol, mm -hmm. the stress hormones. Shame is, is, is the... Is, is the highest elevator of those stress hormones of all human emotions. Mm -hmm. And so think about it. Trauma in childhood, as if that wasn't bad enough, and now I get to have shame, and now I get addicted. And so on top of that, I'm being shamed for my addiction. Why don't I just say no? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, them is fighting worse for me. And so it is a double tragedy, yeah. a double bind. The next slide talks about uh, this idea of belief in a just world. When I was in graduate school, I did a research project in, uh, in one course on this and uh, learned a lot about it. And I interviewed people about this. And the, the idea is simply this. If a, something bad happens to you, no, let's pick me. Let's pick. Bob just had a shoulder infection. He must be a bad person. He must have done something <laughs> wrong. And there's not a child developmentally at some age that doesn't concretize it that way. Mm. Bad things happen yeah. to bad people. And if good things are happening, it must mean you're good. Yeah. But some of us sustain this throughout our lives, and shame will sustain this for sure. If, if, if something bad has happened to you or something's bad has happened to me, shame will turn that into your fault. Hmm. Psychology calls that a dispositional attribution, which is to say there's something wrong with your disposition or your mm -hmm. character if it happened bad. The crazy thing about this, psychology calls this the fundamental attribution error, is mm -hmm. if something happens, let's say that you're ashamed. Yeah. If something bad happens to Odie, then it's your fault because there's something broken about you. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the perversity. If he looks at me and something bad has happened, this is the attribution error, he'll actually say what happened to Bob was owing to circumstance mm -hmm. or bad luck. Mm -hmm. And so he'll give generosity to me that he won't give to himself. Right. Shame does that. With shame, we're our own worst enemy. And really what it does is it makes me evil and bad and defective. <laughs> and you're fine. Right. You tripped and fell on your face, and I'm so sorry you had an accident. I have tripped and fall on my face, and I'm the world's greatest klutz. <laughs> That's shame. That's shame. 
So let me ask a question to our audience. <laughs> what does trauma traumatize? If, if trauma is there in our early childhood, let's say, some of us it comes later in life, you send me to the, the, the battlefront, you can guarantee I'm going to be traumatized because I'm a sensitive boy. So what is it that trauma traumatizes? And it's a bit of a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about that for a second. There's a lot of, uh, of popular literature on trauma, so all of us are familiar with the term, I think. But, but what is it that it traumatizes? As we've talked about before, and it gets to something that you touched on earlier, Odie, it traumatizes our spirits. You know, your fundamental Odiness, my fundamental Bobness. I think Austin has some Austinness. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely Franz's France is Franzness. Is, is the way the Eastern traditions talk about that they call this, you know, our spirit, our original face before we were born. Right. And if you've grown up in the Western traditions, uh, for example, of Ju Judaism and Christianity, mm -hmm. it's talked about in terms of the soul right. or the spirit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, maybe God's spirit within us. Mm -hmm. It's referred to in the Catholic tradition as the image of God, the imago dei, which is the Latin term for the image of God. That's what gets traumatized. Uh, on the heels of trauma, and so again, this is part of the, this is part of the tragedy of it. This would be the next slide: is that is that first there is the pain that we endure in trauma of disappointment, of invasion or abandonment by people that we really trusted, mm -hmm. and then secondly, we desert ourselves mm -hmm. and we abuse ourselves by yeah. virtue of self-blame, and so that's the double whammy. And it makes me sad, except that it's universal yeah. in the work that I do. And I care a lot about the, the men and women that I work with. And when I look at them, you know, I have to tell you, um, years ago I read the autobiography. It was, it was a biography of Mother Teresa. Hmm. And uh, it was written by Malcolm Muggeridge. The book was called Something Beautiful for God. I read it very early, uh, my junior year in college. And uh, I was very moved by it. And there's something that that I learned from Mother Teresa's life is that when she looked at the lepers in Calcutta across all ages, she said that she saw Christ in their eyes. Mm. She saw Jesus in their mm. eyes. And it still moves me, is that that's being able to see past the touch. Uh, touches me deeply right now. Yeah. That's great. It's being able to see past the surface presentation to that person's original face, to their spirit. And I completely believe that that's able, not only what she was able to see, but that was the healing impact. Whether it reversed the, leper, the leprosy or not, it healed the soul to be seen. Yeah. That's all any of us want, want in our lives. Yeah. In fact, I want to keep moving with that, and we'll talk mm -hmm. about this, is I want to ask the question, can you imagine in your own life, if you're prone to what we're talking about, and I am, I'm not going to say that Odie is, but you've shared your own version of it, and I appreciate that. Yeah. I've been, uh, there's actually a term in psychology, they call it shame proneness. Mm -hmm. And if you look that up in Wikipedia, it just shows my picture. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Weathers photograph. I'm okay. going to go home and do that. Yeah, no, I, trust yeah, me, I'm my face is right there on shape proneness. <laughs> is that, can you imagine, to whatever extent you find yourself vulnerable to shame, that is where you discount yourself or you're worried about people ostracizing uh, you, kicking you out, yeah. and have experienced that, have experienced being marginalized, have experienced being stigmatized, having experienced being judged, can you imagine self-compassion rather than self-blame. Mm. And that really gets us at the heart of the matter yeah. today. 
is that self-compassion is itself the antidote to self-blame. And it's easier said than done, and that's why I'm asking you just to start with, can you imagine that? Kind of in the spirit of John Lennon's song, can you imagine? Can you imagine <laughs> self-compassion in the place of self-blame? I can even hear him playing his piano. Imagine yeah. self-compassion. That's brilliant. He's a singer. I'm a drummer. Dun, dun. So I'll do the Ringo thing. No, that's it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Someone just wrote in that they're happy to see me. I'm happy to be back. Thank you. I have to tell you, in fact, it came up to me earlier when I went back to my first group at, at beginnings uh, in three weeks. This is the men's group on the unshaming group on Wednesdays. Uh, Several of the men came up and just said they were happy to see me. And then one man to the right of the group, about the middle of the group, he says, Dr. Bob, I want you to stop for a second. He says, we love you. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. I told them that I... Um, before I came to the group, I opened up my computer and all of their pictures are in my computer. It's on the, it's on the, the, uh, the uh, clinical website. And I did that for one reason. I wanted to see if anybody that I knew was still there. <laughs> it's been so many weeks. And I just wanted to be prepared for a, a sea of new faces. And I was gratified to see that about two-thirds of the people that I'd seen three weeks ago were still there. They're still in the program. And there was about a third that were new. But I told, uh, I responded to this gentleman by the truth of what happened for me is that when I was viewing their faces... I do feel, thank you. It's like Mother Teresa, I see Christ in their eyes. Yeah. We don't have a PowerPoint slide for this. <laughs> uh, I do want to say something about my tears, is having been so ill. Uh, the doctor told me in the hospital that if I had continued uh, this path, I would have died. It was a very serious infection, and wow. we stopped it, obviously, before I died. And, yeah. well, am I here? Yeah. I am here. Okay, so <laughs> I didn't die. Just checking. Okay. No, it's a very, uh, very serious uh, illness that, I, that I've gone through, and I'm yeah. really on the upside right now. But um, I found myself in this kind of openness, mm. you know. Yeah. I just described to you something that I feel deeply, and I talk about things here a lot mm -hmm. with us that I feel deeply about. But tears come uh, because it's so accentuated for me right now. There's something so humbling and clarifying about being this ill. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's experienced this in your life, uh, there are other, psychology refers to them as, as boundary experiences. It can be the loss of somebody that you love. Mm -hmm. It can be the loss of a dream. It can be some setback. It can be illness. It can be near death. Uh, is that uh, these these boundary experiences really open us up mm. to more of life, and yeah. um, I can really feel that. I yeah. can't help but cry. I, right. That's my tears today. Uh, uh, and it was rather evident today with the group. Yeah. Their love for me is mirrored by my love for them, and mm. this really is an example of the rich getting richer because their compassion for me, my compassion for them, that's part of the healing. Yeah. In fact, if shame opposes self-compassion, if shame opposes self-compassion, which we talked about earlier, right. the flip side of that's equally true, is that self-compassion opposes shame. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, that's cute, and that's obvious. 
Well, I, I want to say a word about that. When I was, when I taught, uh, for 15 years I taught in a local graduate school uh, as a, a professor of psychology. And I happened to have the good fortune of teaching in those years with, uh, with an older man who was in the, the twilight of his career, but he's, he's considered the father of behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. His name is Joseph Wolpe. He was on the same faculty. In fact, if you looked up uh, the faculty photographs, it was Bob Weathers and Joseph Wolpe. I always felt like, wow, how honored am I because I'd studied him my whole career and now I'm on the same faculty as him. And uh, he, uh, he developed in the 1950s and 60s the basis of behavior therapy, which serves as the basis of cognitive behavior therapy, which is the reigning paradigm in psychology. And I learned this from Dr. Wolpe is that, is that just as I talked about self-compassion opposing shame, Dr. Wolpe introduced this term. By the way, if you want to look him up, you can read about him on Wikipedia. It's W-O-L-P-E, Dr. Wolpe, Joseph Wolpe. He introduced this idea of reciprocal inhibition. And you just got to hate some of these terms, but if you <laughs> unpack them, they always make sense, or usually do. Reciprocal inhibition means simply this. If I do something, it inhibits its opposite. So it's reciprocally inhibited. The example that he gives, it's impossible to be relaxed and stressed at the same time. Hmm. So if I come to you for counsel and I'm stressed out, anything that you can do to help me relax is cash in the bank. Mm -hmm. that's, re that's reciprocal inhibition. Mm -hmm. So this is the birth in the 70s of, of so much literature on the relaxation response. If I can learn to relax myself, do you remember my talking about self-regulation earlier? Yeah. If I can learn to relax my body, that's how I diminish barbecuing in my adrenaline. <laughs> if I can learn to do that, because I can't actually be anxious and stressed at the same time. Yeah. Uh, no, that is the same, sorry. Back it up. <laughs> I can't be relaxed and anxious or stressed at the same time. Yeah. Well, the same thing with shame and self-compassion. They're directly antagonistic. They're, op they're the opposites. And so if I can find ways to birth and nurture self-compassion in my life, then what I do is I'm actively beginning to diminish the stranglehold mm -hmm. that shame wants to have on me. And that's uh, reciprocal inhibition at its best. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Wolpe. <laughs> You know, the cool thing about this, Odie, is that we can retrain our brains, we can retrain our, our, our minds, excuse me, we can retrain our minds. So the examples you gave earlier, and I'm sure you work on this with your wife, is, mm -hmm. is that when you guys have a, a disjunction, you work to heal it and you move on from that. And so every time you do that, there's, it's, you're stronger for it. Your relationship is stronger. Yeah, exactly. I had a seamstress tell me this, is that if you tear a coat and then uh, repair it, you know, mm -hmm. however you thread it back together and so on like that. It's actually stronger on the side of the repair than the rest of the coat. Hmm. Does that, is that trippy? Does that make sense? Is that if you repair something, That's crazy. it's actually stronger. It's a crazy image, isn't it? Yeah. So theoretically, my shoulder with all of these, <laughs> all of these stitches in it, I'm going to be, I was talking to Franz earlier, I'm going to be so buff. When I get over this, you guys are going to be so scared of me. Like, the shoulder of Bob. Uh, but it's the same with our psyches. If we can retrain some yeah. of these patterns, our minds, uh, we actually get stronger. And uh, I have a supervisor, Bonnie Badenoch, who I love dearly. Um, uh, she lives up in Portland, Oregon now. She's one of the 
really kind of instrumental pioneers in what's referred to as interpersonal neurobiology, which mm -hmm. couples together the best of neuroscience with mindfulness and other resources, and she's a fantastic uh, supervisor. Bonnie uh, helped me understand this, is that we can actually change our brains, and she talked about it this way, is that when you do something to repair your relationship to your wife, or if I do something to repair my relationship with myself, mm -hmm. I'm actually, with practice, and doing that, uh, not just once, but, but regularly, I'm actually building new neuronal pathways. Wow. And so if you talk about in terms of the brain, you're building new, new grooves in the psyche. And uh, I don't think that's a theory anymore for me, and I'll tell you an example. Mm -hmm. When I started into sincere, abstinent recovery, six years ago. I've been at this for about 10 years, but it took me a while to kind of figure out what I needed to do yeah. um, and began addressing this shame for me. I started off probably 90% operating 90% of the time in shame. Mm. So I'd assume if we were talking, you'd be looking at me, judging me, mm. which would be the definition of paranoia, right? Yeah. But that's absolutely, <laughs> I was operating in the world. And after years and years of the kind of practice that we're going to be introducing over the next few weeks, including uh, self-compassion practice, building these muscles. The truth is, is that I operate maybe 10% of the time with shame. Mm -hmm. We just say that it may never be done for me because I've got some pretty deep scars right. developmentally. You may too. Yeah. But the good news is it's not 90% of the time. You can say something that will really hurt. Mm. And so I'm not, a, I'm not oblivious or immune to shame. But right. the fact is I don't walk around barbecuing it all the time. And right. that's a huge grace. Yeah. And I think it ties into this, this whole idea that as you begin to retrain your mind, you're actually building new brain. Yeah. I have a friend, another friend, Lou Casalino, who's another one of these interpersonal neurobi neurobiologists. Lou and I used to be on the same faculty and to be quite close. And he talks about psychotherapy as changing brain. Mm. It's usually changing brain. Wow. And it's literally the case. Uh, yeah. It's literally the case. It's like building a set of new muscles. Uh, if you think, it's kind of an odd way to think about it, if you think of muscles of self-compassion, what we're doing is we're building new muscles and mm -hmm. with practice. If you and I have weak abs, and if we start doing sit-ups gently at first so we don't cripple ourselves, <laughs> gently at first and begin to build up our endurance and our stamina to do more and more of those, yeah. it won't be long. Six weeks, we'll notice a strong difference between our ab uh, tone and now, which is amazing to me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's research in mindfulness. John Kabat-Zinn at Harvard, that if you practice his meditations for six weeks, mm -hmm. they can actually detect, this is crazy, stuff. I was thinking of another word, but I used stuff. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> is that you can actually look at the brain and it thickens the, 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 the cortex. Huh. Is that six weeks of mindfulness wow. practice, you're actually literally building brain because that part of the cortex uh, uh, the gray matter that's developing is a function of, of, of uh, increasing mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? You practice it, you build brain. Right, so yeah. it really isn't an accident. So it's pretty <laughs> crazy. I can say this for myself. I don't have any idea if I have a heavier frontal cortex or not. <laughs> Mine has felt pretty light the last few weeks, to be honest with you. Having said that, is that I know without a doubt that six years later, Bob Weathers does not walk around cowering, crippled mm. by shame yeah. at all, and nowhere near what I experienced habitually as recently as six years ago. Mm. So the six-year path to recovering from shame, come talk to me. Okay. <laughs> Let's finish up today with this. Let's finish up. What I'd like to do is guide us in a meditation in the spirit of, of our talking earlier about prayer. We don't always do this. The next slide, the next slide is this little cute little picture. <laughs> 
that is building the muscle of self-compassion. And we're tying it right into what neuroscience calls the heart brain, mm. is that you've got a head brain, you've got a gut brain, you've mm. got a heart brain, we all have it. And so what we're talking about doing is building the heart brain. The, the, uh, the center of the chest is innervated with neuronal fibers, just as is the abdomen, the gut area, and as is the brain. Our brains radiate throughout our bodies, and there's different functions of those different things. So we're talking about building the heart brain, as you see in that image there. And uh, I want to just guide us in a brief meditation. It's patterned after what I do in the mornings, and so I'm slightly altering it to fit the situation. And what I wanted to ask you to do is think of someone you love. Mm. This can be your wife, Odie. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also think of God. If you, have, if you have a prayer life that includes praying to God, uh, for those that are, that are in the 12-step programs, there's a lot of emphasis on identifying your higher power. That's all we're talking about is who do you pray to? Mm -hmm. Who do you thank? Who do you sit silently with? And then if you think about that for a minute, I'm just going to guide us through a three-part meditation, and it's going to be probably something like 30 seconds or a minute. It's brief. But it's just to give honor as a beginning foundation. Today has been a first run-through of self-compassion. We're going to dig deeper and more specific in the next few weeks. I'll say more about that before we sign off today. So will you guys join me in just a brief meditation? So voicing this to whoever comes to mind when you think of, of someone you love who loves you, it can be God, it can be a partner, it can be a family member, it can be a friend. This is what I want you to say. Is, is it? May I feel your love owing to what we've talked about today. That is to say, may I feel more self-compassion in light of all that Odie and I have shared today together. May I feel your love. Next, may I feel your peace, peace of mind, peace of heart, owing to where we've gone today. May I feel your peace. And then finally, may I feel your joy in light of all that we've discussed today and all the places we've gone. May I feel your joy. Amen. Thank you uh, for joining me. Thank you. Um, oh, did you want to? You know, I've just talked a lot today. I'm, I'm getting fine. caught up. I've been yeah, kind of gotta, muted. So, yeah, I'm kind of like. up for all Yeah, this yeah. I like one of those bulls and pamploners. <laughs> 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 I appreciate you being with me. Yeah. Odie knows this, and I shared with him earlier, <laughs> is it's been night and day for me to have you to interact with. And sometimes we talk more. You've shared today for sure. We do every time. But just right. having you present with me means the world to me. I really, to be able to riff off of you, it really turns us from, as I said to you, and Austin and Franz have been the most patient people on the planet <laughs> as I've tried to find a relationship to this dadgum camera, which is, I don't know, it's just like R2-D2 or something. It's just really <laughs> hard for me. And you're not. You're like yeah. a living human being and brilliant and loving. And I really, really appreciate you being here, Odie. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, just as we wrap up today, uh, we've been talking about building self-compassion. We're looking at it as the antidote. Remember reciprocal inhibition. We're looking at self-compassion as the antidote to shame. And what we're going to be doing these next few weeks is going directly into then how do we build these new muscles. So mm -hmm. next week, for example, we're going to be looking at res the restoring of hope as tied into this. And I'll say a quick word about that. There's a psychotherapy researcher who's one of the biggies, Jerome Frank, 
who said that there's one thing in common across all clients that come to see a therapist, and that is this. It's actually called the demoralization hypothesis. To put that into English, what he says is that every client coming to see a therapist has lost hope. Mm. So whether I'm depressed or anxious or addicted or whatever the heck it is, I've lost hope. And what he means by that is that I've gone to my friends, right. I've gone to my pastor, I've gone to whoever in my life that I would go to, and it's not working. Mm -hmm. And so I give up hope and I come. Uh, I, don't, I don't have clients over the years as a therapist and now as a, as a recovery coach. I don't have clients coming in as a first resort. Mm -hmm. And yeah. oftentimes it's a second or third or even last resort right. because they've exhausted everything else. And that's the way it is for all of us. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk next week about restoring hope, it's in the context that's really essential. I've got to have some hope that what we talked about today is going to make a difference or why would I engage? Yeah, so exactly. We'll be looking at that next week. The following weeks we'll be talking about, well, the following week we'll be talking about using shame as a signal to the self. I'll flesh that out more, but let me mention to this to you, is that when I was lying on my near-death bed, mm -hmm. a new book just came out. I ordered it and it came. I wasn't able to read it because I wasn't able to read anything. Mm -hmm. But the title of the book is The Upside of Shame. Mm -hmm. I try to stay current in the shame literature, and I've shared some of those resources uh, over time with you all. This is the brand, a brand new book that's got some oomph to it, apparently. It comes well-reviewed. And, uh, and I haven't read the book yet. It's sitting at home. I can picture right there on the living room table. But uh, we're going to be looking at the upside here, and that is using shame as a signal. That is, when shame arises, what is it telling me that I need to address? Mm. Yeah. So you remember that story I told you about in graduate school where yeah. everybody got up and applauded? Mm -hmm. That was a massive wake-up call for Bob <laughs> Weathers. There's something right. really wrong at home here, and I need to address this. And it took me years and years to incorporate, and I still am incorporating mm. what was opened up in that first thing. But that's shame as lighthouse, going, ch -ch -ch -ch. you need to get this, you need to get this. And so we'll be talking about that more next week, or uh, uh, two weeks from now. And then three weeks from now, the piece de resistance <laughs> is that we'll be revisiting something that we, re that we did earlier before Odie came on the scene, but now Odie's going to be here. We're going to be able to talk about it. We're going to be revisiting a self-forgiveness exercise. It's a practice, like we talked about building muscles. Mm. It's a practice like doing sit-ups in which you can build uh, resistance to shame as well, uh, uh, or resilience, let's say, in the face of shame, as well as uh, uh, there's a concrete practice that I can engage in that will build my self-compassion. Mm. So it's not some theoretical abstract thing. There's stuff that I can do on a daily basis that will help build these muscles that will afford me a buffer against uh, uh, shame's ill effects. And so I'm very interested in giving something concrete to our listeners, our viewers, Sounds that good. you can practice. And so we'll be getting to that next. Any uh, final words from you before I sign off? Uh, I maybe it'd be best for next week, but I'll just throw it out there because I had a, a question, but uh, I, I didn't see kinda, I didn't see it up there. No, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't have a chance to type it down low here. But, we have a uh, screen up here that lists questions. Go go for it, and if we, if we don't address it now, we'll come to it next week for sure. Yeah. So maybe we can visit it next week. But uh, I think you kind of answered it as well, though, uh, because you're gonna go into it next week mm -hmm. with the practices cause, yeah, yeah, uh, for yeah, it, yeah. building that muscle. Yeah. I was going to ask if, uh, if affirmations have anything uh, to do yeah. With, yeah. with that, to build that muscle yeah. as a part of a practice. Let's do address this. We start a couple minutes late, so we'll go a couple minutes late if, unless France turns off the lights and then we'll all leave and call it a night. Oh, no. <laughs> he's turning off the lights. Oh, God, don't, don't cut me off. <laughs> 
it ties into what we talked about earlier. Do you remember when you said that 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 uh, when somebody gives you a compliment, that mm -hmm. you'll you'll tend to respond to it maybe with humility, maybe mm -hmm. with a brush off. Right. And the example I gave is a royal example of it. It was like all these compliments coming in with every uh, uh, person applauding, and I can't receive any of it. Mm -hmm. And so it all depends on on where the affirmations land right. in the spirit of what we talked about. Yeah. So I can do affirmations till the cows come home. You know where this is going. Okay. Yeah. I can do those till the cows come <laughs> home, but if I'm covered with Teflon, it's, it's just ice work. cream. Yeah. It's just gotcha. I, uh, affirmations as ice cream running down the Teflon. Whereas if I can find a way for it to land, like that last image of heart practice, I like that. if I can yeah. find a way for the affirmations to land where I can actually receive them. You saw my response when I talked about the gentleman to say yeah. today, Bob, we love you. Right. It's like fully received. Yeah. Well, it's not that long ago in my life that he could have said that and it would have been minimally received. Mm. And you go back a few more years in my life and it would be non-received. Yeah. And so it's moving towards that. And so gotcha. affirmations of themselves, I don't believe affirmations of themselves will break through Teflon. Mm. We've got to do some inner work to create a fertile soil for right. them to land. Once that's developed, I'm all for affirmations. In fact, all that I shared earlier about yeah. my gratitude practice, gotcha. you know, including physical practice, it's just one affirmation after another rooted mm. in reality. But these are affirmations. And I sit with them and I start my day feeling really grateful to be me. Right. I feel, yeah. and humbly so. It's like, these are gifts from God that I'm receiving. Yeah. And I just like reminding myself of them. But it won't land if I'm not worthy of receiving God's grace or you. however you understand it. So, yeah. That's great. Yeah. So just yeah. to, I guess, to reiterate and to mm -hmm. bring it home. Mm -hmm. So pretty much whatever it is that's in the way, the Teflon, yeah. you got to get to the root of it. Yeah. Remove it. Yeah. In order for those yeah. to yeah. sink in. And I think there's gotcha. different pathways to doing that. My background's right. in clinical psychology, yeah. and I've practiced something now for the last six years almost every day. And so I've, in psychology, we call it an N of one experiment. N just means number of subjects. Right. It's an N of one, N of Bob, an N of Bob study for six years. Mm. And it's certainly rooted in plenty of other people's research, but I've been yeah. researching myself for six years. <laughs> and I'll confess what I know by heart, which is that what I'm going to share with you over these next few weeks will address the Teflon. Yeah. And Great. it may not for you, mm -hmm. because you're you and not me. But right. what I want to do is I want to share with you what I know by heart, because mm. I'm absolutely convinced of it. And then if you can improvise on that theme and find your own entry point, mm. because of your own background, your own faith, and so on, yeah. that's all I want to do is encourage people to be creative. But I want to provide some raw materials so that we can come up with some things that will concretely break through the Teflon. Right. That's the bottom line. You named it perfectly. It's like, let's find some, let's find some way to move through that. For those of you that are kind of turned off by that masculine breakthrough thing, I'm sorry about that. Let's find it. Yeah. Is there a way to, I, and I really mean this respectfully. I'm a guy. Okay. I break through stuff. That's what guys do. Okay. If there's a way to uproot, uproot, graciously evaporate. Graciously and not evaporate. saying this, I'm absolutely, whatever the language is for that, some way to diminish its, uh, I used the word stranglehold earlier. Shame will strangle us, it will paralyze us, it will kill us. Mm. In the realm of addiction, shame kills. I don't want to have any mercy on that. And in order to move through that, I've got to find an alternative, reciprocal inhibition. I've got mm. to find an antidote, because I can be angry, frustrated, judging of my own shame, and it won't go away with that. Mm. I've got to find skillful means. Yeah. And if we're doing anything here these next few weeks, it's to elaborate on skillful means. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds good. Good, good, yeah. good, good. Awesome. Any final questions from our audience? You know how to get a hold of me. You can, you can reach out to Austin. 
you can reach out. And, and, Austin, and Austin and Franz actually serve as as a liaison for this. I write to ask an addiction specialist. Austin lets me know if you've asked a question, and many people do after the uh, after the podcast. If you're viewing this in uh, asynchronous time, that is not in real time with Odie and me, and you review this, it doesn't uh, inhibit you from, from reaching out to me. Go through Ask an Addiction Specialist, it's Facebook. You can also notify through YouTube. Uh, you can also go to the Beginnings Treatment Center website and find these videos. And you can also go to my website, uh, 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 which Franz is gonna bring up right now. Uh, I, I've been a little bit out of, out of speed in the last few weeks, but what I intend to do is I'll be also including all of our uh, archive podcasts uh, on my website, and if you go to drbobweathers.com, Dr. Bob there's a there's a there's a uh, on the contacts page you can write me a question there too. Mm -hmm. So there's multiple ways to get a hold of me. All roads lead to Rome, and I encourage you to to reach out. I encourage you to invite friends. We'll be back next Wednesday. Uh, we'll share with you what we're going to be discussing, which is restoring hope. Be back with the Odie and Bob show, and uh, give us your likes. Okay, we like you too. All right, thank you guys. Thanks for joining us. Blessings. Have a good week.